Please join me in praying. Lord, this is your word. It tells us about what you've done for us and how you come alongside us. Lord, I pray for your help as I preach. I pray for each one of us here that we would hear your voice today, that you would encourage us. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I think about encouragement this morning, I want to uh, share something that our bishop actually emailed me this week. I was in an email dialogue with him to talk about preaching schedules, and I'm hoping I can get him to come and preach to us next month. And in the context of that email dialogue, he sent me an encouraging word. He said, these are his his exact words. He said, I was just listening to a Gospel Coalition podcast entitled, A Model for Missions in a Brave New World. His model is simple and ancient. Create healthy churches and use them as bases for mission. Honestly, I immediately thought of grace as he was speaking. What an encouraging word that our bishop was listening to this podcast telling the church of today how to figure out how to do ministry in our current context. And he immediately thought of our church as one that's a healthy church that is creating a base for missions, that launching out of here, all sorts of missions are occurring. And I'm really thankful for that, especially as we consider uh, this preaching series called Discipling Generations, where we're talking about how one person who is a disciple helps another become a disciple. As a church, our vision statement is extending grace, discipling generations. And we're looking at really the fourth quadrant. If you uh, know our discipleship pathway, it involves four things, worship, and then belonging, and then service. And the fourth quadrant is making disciples, which is hard. Uh, It's a hard thing to do. And today in this sermon series, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and we've been seeing examples of how one person makes a disciple of another one. We've seen Peter and God working miraculously through him and how many people were added into the church and were discipled from those guys. And then last week, we looked at the Apostle Paul's conversion and a man named Ananias come alongside him and disciple Paul, who became this great apostle. And today, we're going to look at Barnabas, who's an awesome figure in the early church, and in particular, his work with the church in Antioch. So, um, we see Barnabas come alongside new Christians in Antioch and help them grow in their faith. Now, to get a sense of where we're going here, I I need to do a little geography lesson. So I've got three maps for you, and I'm going to ask, Francis, put the first map up there. I know you probably can't see that very well, but you can probably make out that that's the Mediterranean Sea, and there's a big red dot in the northeast corner on the coast there. So if you know where Jerusalem is down lower, Antioch is up to the north. So on that on that eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem is down in the, the southern side, and Antioch is up on the northern side. But in Acts, it can be confusing because there are two cities called Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria, is how they refer to it in Acts, although it's technically in Turkey right now. And then there's Antioch in Pisidia. If you show me the next map, so that's the Antioch that's in Pisidia, and you come across that in Acts chapter 13, and we're in Acts chapter 11. Two Antiochs, very confusing. Both are in modern-day Turkey. The wrong one, the one I'm not talking about today, is up in the middle of Turkey. The one we are talking about today is down in the southern part. And go to the third map, and I want to show you why it's significant. The text today tells us that when persecution broke out, they scattered to three places. Now, remember what happened. The first martyr for the faith was a deacon, a man named Stephen, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, a holy man, and he was telling people about Jesus. 
And uh, the Jews in particular got angry with him, and they stoned him to death. And he died in a glorious fashion. But what happened is on that day, massive persecution broke out against the church. It was like when he got stoned, like a bloodlust was let go and the church was under huge attack, physical violent attack. And so they scattered and it ended up doing great mission work, but it wasn't intentional. They didn't go to do missions work. They did to flee the, they, they went to flee the persecution. And it says that they went to three places. They went to what is now modern day Lebanon. They went to Cyprus, which is that little island that's in the middle of the Mediterranean right there. And then they went up to where the red dot is, which is Antioch. And it's in Antioch that some interesting things happened. A number of firsts, actually. One of the things that occurred, it tells us, is that the people who went there not only spoke to the Jews in that area, but they spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists were Greek-speaking, non-Jewish polytheists. They believed in lots of different gods. They were pagans, but they were Greek-speaking. And these, these people who were scattered were sharing the gospel with them, and they were coming to faith. And it was kind of surprising everyone how these Greeks were responding to the good news. And so this church starts to grow there, and then Barnabas is sent to encourage them. But it was an interesting church because it had a, a multi-ethnic composition. It had a Jewish and a Gentile composition. It even had a socioeconomic uh, diversity. And I'm telling you that because I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 13. It says this about Antioch in chapter 13. It says, now there were in Antioch prophets and teachers, and it names a bunch of them. Barnabas, who I'll come to in a second. Simon, who was called Niger. The Greek word Niger means of dark skin. So this is probably an African man, a, a, a dark man, dark skin man. Uh, Simeon, who was ca called Niger. And then Lucius of Cyrene, also an African. You remember Simon of Cyrene that carried Jesus' cross in the Passion? Cyrene is in northern Africa. And here's another person from Cyrene named Lucius that was in Antioch, was part of this church. So they have two African people there. A man named Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So this is a guy who has political connections and is in the upper crust of society, probably wealthy. Um, and then it says, and Saul. So the apostle Paul, Saul, who was really a Jewish rabbi teacher, like a professor type. All of those people were in leadership in this church in Antioch. And what, what our passage in chapter 11 tells us is that they were first called Christians there, a term that still remains for us today. If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian. And the reason that that name was developed here is because they couldn't name this religion based on an ethnic group or any particular nationality. They weren't Jews who had found their Messiah. They were Greeks and Jews and um, uh, wealthy and poor and men and women. And it was this diverse picture of the body of Christ. And so they became known as Christians, which means little Christs or followers of Christ. And it tells us here that it was the first time that people were referred to as Christians happened in Antioch. So that's a first. Another thing that's a first for this is that this was a church that launched mission strategically and intentionally, not accidentally because of persecution and scattering, but they strategically did. I'm back in chapter 13. It says this, um, that group that I named, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And they went to Cyprus, that island, which is where Barnabas was from. And then they went up into Turkey um, and went up to the other Antioch in Pisidia and went to a number of different places around there and were sharing the gospel both with Jews and with Greeks. So Antioch 
became a multi-ethnic, healthy base for missions. That was a, a, the first time the church had been strategic about sending people out with the gospel to reach the world. Now, when Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem learned that these Greeks up in Antioch came to faith, they send Barnabas. They send Barnabas up there to disciple them, to encourage them, to help them. Now, Barnabas is not his original name. You know how Jesus changes people's names? He does it all the time. He changed, you know, he called Peter, Peter instead of Simon. He called uh, James and John Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. He gave nicknames to people that lined up with their character. And so the apostles followed Jesus' suit. In chapter 4, a man named Joseph, who's from Cyprus, sells some land and gives the money to the apostles for the needs of the poor in the church. They called him the son of encouragement, which is what Barnabas means literally. Barnabas, son of encouragement. So now Barnabas has been in leadership ever since. That's back in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. By chapter 11, the church in Jerusalem is is saying, Barnabas, son of encouragement, you need to go up to Antioch and encourage those people there. And so he goes up. Now look at verse, I'm on page 920 in a pew Bible, but if you look at verse 23, it tells us what he did. It says that, When he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he exhorted them. And then in verse 24, it tells you the result. It also tells you about him. It says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Because of his ministry of exhortation and encouragement, others were added to the Lord. The church got stronger. It got healthier. It grew. What made him effective? I want to know what made him effective because I want us to be like that. I want us to be able to encourage people and see others added to the Lord or to grow in their faith. And it says three things in here about his personality or about his his character. In verse 24, he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. If you know your Bible and you hear somebody say, it says somebody is a good man, you might think of an interaction that Jesus had with a young rich ruler who comes to him one time. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to him is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. By the way, if you'd come to Barnabas and said, are you a good man? He would have said no. Any man or woman that is good will say they're not good because they recognize, like the Apostle Paul did in Romans 7, the sin and the tension within them. But you can recognize God's work in somebody, and the church did, and that's why when Luke writes Acts, he says he was a good man. But see, Jesus said to that young rich man who came to him, no one is good except God. Why are you calling me good? And he describes the Ten Commandments to this young man, actually the latter portion of them, and he says, I've kept all these from birth. What more must I do? And then Jesus deals with the fact that he's not a good man. He's an, an idolater. He's got a huge idol, which is his money. And he says, here's what you want to do. If you want to be perfect, if you want to be a good man, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And then, then it'll happen. That's when you do it. And he goes away sad. And then Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And the disciples go, that's impossible. Who then can be saved? It's impossible. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, God can take a bad man 
and make him into a good man. In fact, he's been doing it for 2,000 years. He does it all the time. The question is not, how, how good do I have to be? How to, what is good enough? The question is, what is bad enough? You have to get to a level where you recognize, I'm bad enough that I come and ask for God's help, that I repent of my sin, that I say, I'm a broken person. And then God says, ah, now I can heal you. Now I can work with you because you're honest about the situation. And see, the scriptures teach us in Romans 3.23 that all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And in 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. So that's physical death, which is, you know, aging and dying. That's spiritual death inside of us. Something is not right, not alive. And relational death. We are separated from God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. He didn't wait until we were good enough because we would never get there. So he comes to us in our badness and our brokenness, and he says, I love you. I've died for you. I offer forgiveness and a relationship. I can heal you. So what happens in a person like Barnabas or anyone who acknowledges they're bad enough is they come alive. They're born again. The Holy Spirit in them starts to bring goodness, and it comes and works its way onto the outside. So you start to look at the life of someone like Barnabas, and the church can really say he was a good man, not because of his own effort, but because of the power of God working in and through him. This is Jesus' gift of being a new creation, made new. He really does then become a Christian, a little Christ. He starts to look like Christ. He does the things that Christ would have done if he was there ministering and encouraging Antioch. And that's what I long for all of us, that we would experience that newness of life where goodness starts to work its way out, where before there was badness, now there's goodness working out because God is at work in us. He was a good man because Jesus made him so. The second thing it says is he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, if you give your life to Christ, you repent of your sin, you believe the cross, you believe that Jesus paid for your sins and forgives you, if that happens, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and is always with you. But it doesn't mean you're full of the Holy Spirit. You can have the Holy Spirit and ignore him. We all know, if you're a Christian, you know the experience of choosing to ignore him and the, also the experience of, of being in his power, going in his ways. That's the great tension of discipleship, of walking in this inner turmoil. The Apostle Paul describes it in Galatians where he says this. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So we want to do the right things. We want to do the good things, but then we do the wrong things. There's this tension. And Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. He was reaping what he had sown. Galatians goes on to say, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Anytime you please yourself, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring about the right fruit. But when you sow to the Holy Spirit, when you ask for his power in your life, when you choose to walk in his ways, you actually reap good fruit. And Galatians 5 gives you a list. If, you want to, if I'm being too general with sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit, just read Galatians 5. There's a list of the fruit of the Spirit, one of which, by the way, is goodness. He was a good man. That's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They're actually engraved on our baptismal font back there in Greek. Goodness, because the Holy Spirit's work. And it gives you a list of the fruits 
of the flesh, which is a whole list of bad things that you don't want to have in your life. He was full of the Holy Spirit because he was choosing in God's power to walk in the ways of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, his life was bringing fruit. And it was bearing fruit up in this particular church in Antioch. And the third thing it says about him is that he was full of faith. Now, faith is a gift of God. It's also a fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. But I like to think of it like a muscle. You all have muscles. Some are stronger than others. Your muscles can atrophy if you don't use them. But you can also use a muscle and it will get stronger. You can exercise your faith. You can live full of faith and begin to see a kind of growth. He was full of faith, which, by the way, Hebrews defines as being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. I, don't see, I can't see Jesus. I know he is real. I know he is risen. I know he's Lord and ruling. And I know that the cross pays for our sins. You can exercise those kind of things. And that's what he did. He went up there, it says, and he was, he was seeking God. And when he saw the grace of God at work in these Christians up there, he was glad, it says. The spirit in him rejoiced. He was excited about this. He was glad to see it. And he then exhorted them and encouraged them. And he encouraged them to stay in the Lord, to make the Lord first in their life. Now, here's a question for you. Do you believe the gospel? Faith is believing. It's believing the good news. The Apostle Paul comes out in Romans again, chapter 1, and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. It is the power of God. And it doesn't, it's not that the people that scattered up there convinced these Greeks to become Christians. They simply gave testimony of the good news, and they watched the power of God at work. They came alongside these Greeks, they shared their story, they talked about the cross and forgiveness and, a rec- and reconciliation with God, and then faith happened. It's the power of God. It transformed them. They went from being polytheists to monotheists. There was one God they found. This is super encouraging. And he comes along with his testimony. He comes alongside and tells them about God and what he's done in his life. And therefore, faith happens for them. Now, there's an important word in here, verse 23, that says he exhorted them. Now, if you look this up in different translations, you might find exhorted or you might find encouraged. In the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the ESV that we're reading, it says he he exhorted them. In the NIV, the New King James, and the New Living Translation, it says encouraged. And whenever you find a word that's different in the various translations, it tells you something about the original Greek word, that there's no one word to to really capture what's going on there. So here's the word, and it has both a noun and a verb form. It's the word paraclete. That would be the paraclete is the noun form, or parakletos would be the actual Greek form. And there's parakaleo would be the verb form. Para means alongside, and kaleo means called. It's one who's called alongside. So exhorting, encouraging. We use this prefix in a number of, you know, think of a paramedic. It's not a doctor, but it's called alongside the doctors to help them, or a paratrooper. Not the troops on the ground, the ones that are going to come out of the, the, jump out, skydive down, and come alongside the troops on the ground and help them. Or a paralegal. It's not the lawyer, board certified lawyer. It's the team that's helping. The paralegals are helping. They come alongside the lawyer and help them. So we have the paraclete, the one who's called alongside us. And that's what he's doing here. But he's not the first time that word is used in the scriptures. In fact, 
when Jesus was teaching his disciples in the upper room on the night before he died, in John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H. It's actually the word parakletos, the paraclete. He will send another helper. Wait, another one? Well, who's the first one? So there's three that I'm talking about here. The first one is Jesus. The second one is the Holy Spirit. And the third one is Barnabas. And so Jesus is our paraclete. He's the one called alongside of us. And it's a legal metaphor, actually, like a, a, a personal attorney arguing your case. So he stands before God, the Father, and says, I stand on behalf of them. They don't need to be judged because I was judged in their place. I've paid their penalty. Therefore, give them my righteousness. Make them good. Make them good. Give them my goodness. He stands between us and the holiness of God. And then he sends this other paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to come. And you know what he does? Instead of standing between us and God and, and interceding, he actually ministers to us and he says, in your heart, you are forgiven. You are loved. Yes, you're broken, but God doesn't hold that against you. The cross was effective. Jesus loves you and he died for you. And you see, the Holy Spirit was doing that in the minds and hearts of the Greeks when they heard the testimony of these people that were scattered up there and then they came alive. They believed what this one who was called alongside them was saying in their hearts. He was affirming truth. That's even why when Barnabas gets up there and he sees the grace of God, he was glad. The spirit in him was rejoicing because he watched what was happening. The kingdom of God was breaking in right there. Now, it's out of that that we then are sent and called alongside others. The ministry of encouragement or exhortation to speak the truth in love, to encourage one another, to be a healthy church where people are growing in their faith and able to then go and help others. I want to encourage you to pick up a ministry of encouragement, just like Barnabas, to recognize that God makes you good, to choose to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, to exercise faith in these statements of truth, and tell other people, come alongside them, and encourage them, and watch the kingdom of God happen in people's lives. I mean, it's Mother's Day, and Dan mentioned that what moms do is they come alongside their kids, and they help them. Maybe you're here this morning because your mom said, come to church. I want you in church with me. It's good for you. You need this. That's the ministry of exhortation. That's being a paraclete. That's doing what the Holy Spirit does for us. And all people can do that for others. My prayer for you is that the Lord would put on your heart someone who needs that kind of encouragement. Or if you're the person that needs that kind of encouragement, that you would pray for God to send someone to you that could encourage you. God, send me a real Christian who can explain this stuff to me. I don't get it. Or, God, who are you sending me to to encourage and exhort? And then be bold and go. Let's pray for God to give us the ministry of Barnabas here. Lord, I'm grateful for the call to discipleship, but it's really hard. Without you, apart from you, we can do nothing. And I pray for you, Holy Spirit, to come and encourage us to fill us afresh, to empower us for the ministry and the mission you've called us to. Lord, right now, I ask that you would put on our hearts individuals that need this kind of ministry and that we would be bold in going. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We invite you now to kneel if you're able as well.